This is Nightmares of the Americas, Indigenous Tales. The show will start in three, two, one. Welcome, everybody, to Nightmares of the Americas, Indigenous Tales. I'm Joseph. And I am Gabriel. How are you doing today, Gabe? I am a new man. I pierced my ears. <laughs> we were just. Well, you shouldn't do that yourself. No. I just did a. <laughs> what is it? I just got a safety pin, to, like in high school. Almost do my pierce my own ears. Was mom there and her uh, cousin or older cousin or whoever pierced your ears? <laughs> I don't know. Someone, one of her family members, like, okay, Lizzie. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. They didn't care back then. None of that. Mm-mm. No, I went no. to a, a professional. Professional. Yeah. Ooh, a, professional. A nice young lady pierced my ears. I said, makes oh, me sound like cool, old man. Awesome. A nice young lady pierced yeah. my ears. There was this nice <laughs> little lassie. And I gave her a butterscotch. She did such a good job. Nice. <laughs> said, Oh, would you like a Werther's? Ooh, a Werther's. <laughs> yeah. Hard candy, my favorite. Yeah, I finally did it. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, that's pretty cool. Well, I'm doing as good as I could be right now, so I guess that's good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I mean, life, but, you know, we all get through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, that was a little sad for me, but <laughs> <laughs> let's move on from that. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you guys have been enjoying this series on Alcatraz mm-hmm. as we are going into part three. And this is going to be a doozy, so sit back. But first, let's talk about all of our stuff. Because you got to get on the social meds. Follow us on Indigenous underscore Tales at TikTok and on TikTok, Instagram, and the YouTubes. Yeah. You know, the good old YouTubes, which I don't, I'm sorry, I'm going to say I'm old right now because I don't do anything with YouTube personally. I just don't watch it. <laughs> um, but then I saw my kids do it and I was like, that looks like Instagram. And they're all like, it's YouTube. And I'm like, right, shut up. Oh, That's yeah. They added like the, the shorts like, on. Yeah. And you can just flip through yeah. them. That's all my kids do. They just flip, flip, mm-hmm. flip, flip. And it's like Legos and all, they get on pretty cool stuff. <laughs> or uh, Ricky's watching one that it's a bunch of. Uh, Godzillas, like mech, mech Godzillas, and they're fighting, oh, cool. but it's just, it's really funny. They're talking like real people, but it's toys, oh. and you can't see the hands, so it's, I don't <laughs> know. Anyway, yeah, so go ahead and follow us there. We have some clips and stuff, but on Instagram and TikTok, we post a bunch of videos and stuff and photos of the episode, so make sure you're following us so you can check out some of the photos mm-hmm. that we talk about in the show. So they all pertain to the show. So thank you for doing that in advance. And also, if you want to do us a solid and go to any of your major podcasting platforms they listen to us on, give us a five-star rating, leave a review if possible. If you're on Apple Podcasts, that really helps us out. I don't know why. It just does. And that's how we were able to get featured. I bet you that's how we were able to get featured. Yeah, I think so. Um, In October. Was it October? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was October. And we're featured in a bunch of spots on Spotify and on apple podcast so thanks for doing that and if you want to get a freebie from us all you have to do is make sure you take a screenshot of your rating and review or review and send it to info at behillnetwork.com b-e-h-i-l-l network.com with your mailing address and your alias and we send we will send you about four stickers and we send those out every other month or every every month something like that so sit back relax wait for it forget about it and then one day you'll be like oh no i got stickers this is awesome yeah then, see you're happy surprise for you that's what it is <laughs> yeah you get a nice trip. we'll probably have one more shipment in 
Yeah, we'll probably have one more shipment before the end of the year, and then we'll roll it over to the next year. And this goes wherever you are in the world that listen to us, you, you get a free stickers. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. So now that all that stuff's out of the way, let's go into part three of Alcatraz, the Pelican Island. Yeah. The Bird Island. It's got all kinds of names. Got to get those sweet Ostri eggs. That's what we got to do. <laughs> yeah. What would you call it last year? Ost- Ostra uh, Aquarius? Yeah. The technical term. <laughs> the technical term. From the Latin swimming boats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so last week we ended with the first shipment of inmates to the rock. The first inmates arrived at Alcatraz on August 11th, 1934. The arrival of the initial group of prisoners marked the beginning of a transformation into one of the most infamous penal institutions in the United States. And I know everybody knows Alcatraz. Well, we're in California, so I guess, I don't know, maybe we're we're just special. Mm-hmm. But and when we talk to anybody, say Alcatraz, like, ooh, Alcatraz. Oh, you know, there was murderers there. There was all kinds yeah. of stuff. Like, Dude, listen to our show. No. <laughs> <laughs> so on that day, 137 men were transferred to Alcatraz from other federal prisons. These men were carefully selected based on their history of disruptive behavior escape attempts, or notoriety in other institutions. The idea behind Alcatraz was to create a prison that was escape-proof and to house some of the most dangerous and difficult-to-manage inmates in the federal system. So that's kind of interesting because you didn't have to be, like, the bad, bad, baddie. You could have just been, like, someone who they're like, he keeps messing up everything. And then you get enough of those, and they're like, send him to Alcatraz. Yeah, it's interesting. You didn't have to be, like, a big-time murderer or a terrorist or something. You could have just been a menace just getting on people's nerves. (laughs) Yeah. They're like, you know what? We're sending him. I'm done with this guy. As the boat approached the Island, the prisoners must have felt a mix of anxiety and uncertainty. Alcatraz situated in the middle of San Francisco Bay with its cold waters seemed like an impenetrable fortress. And I know we've been out there to San Francisco. You've been to San Francisco, right? Uh, I haven't. You haven't? Mm-hmm. Okay. When you go out to San Francisco and you go on Fisherman's Wharf right there, you can see Alcatraz from the from the, the mainland, I guess. And the water there, oh my God, sometimes they don't let you go out there because they have like little tour boats and you could sign up to go out to Alcatraz. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes they're like, nah, we can't do it because it's so windy. And then the water is just up and down, up and oh, down, man. up and down. So these guys in the 30s must have been like, what the hell is going on? It's like you're in the middle of the ocean. It couldn't have been an awesome boat. (laughs) You're sending us where? (laughs) The rocky terrain and harsh conditions on the island reinforced the sense of isolation and confinement. The expectation of Alcatraz was clear to create an environment so secure that escape would be virtually impossible. The prison was designed to break the spirits of even the most hardened criminals through its strict rules routine discipline, and harsh living conditions, the hope was that the threat of being sent to Alcatraz would deter potential troublemakers in the federal penal system. Now, that kind of makes sense. Like, they they wanted to have a, a deterrent in, inside of a deterrent system, I guess you would say, mm-hmm. right? So, you're already in jail. They know you're in prison. And then they go, if you mess up, you're going to go to double prison. Oh, no. Ooh, that's a double prison. We're going to put your ass on an yeah. island. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> on an island? That's terrifying. And then the, and then this is the 30s. So some people were in probably the East Coast, and they might have never even been to the West Coast. Mm-hmm. So they don't know what's going on. So then you hear rumors, and then you hear stories. And there might be someone, a guy who came back from Alcatraz, and he's he's – spinning a yarn and, and they keep going on and on and on. And eventually you're like, dude, I was there. 
And guess who showed up? It was the Incredible Hulk. He started smashing <laughs> everything. It's like, wait, what? He was one of the guards when my cell block. <laughs> the juggernaut was yeah. there. The juggernaut was the guard. And he kicked your ass <laughs> every day. So now let's get into what you guys have been waiting for. Let's talk about one of the most notorious people at Alcatraz, L. Capone. Oh, man. Yeah. So Al was born in 1899. <laughs> I'm going to call him Al because it makes him seem kind of yeah, friendly. he's not intimidating <laughs> if you do that. Good old Al. Good old Al. Makes it Al Bundy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Peg. <laughs> <laughs> he rose to prominence as a leader of the, of the Chicago Outfit, a powerful criminal organization involved in bootlegging, gambling, and racketeering. Despite his involvement in violent crimes, including the infamous St. Valentine's Day Massacre in 1929, Capone managed to elude serious legal consequences. So, a little bit about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. It was in Chicago, 1929, during the height of Prohibition. So, you think about it. You're there. You got speakeasies everywhere. Mm -hmm. You got to do the special knocks on the doors. You got that guy's like, meh. Man, yeah. see, man, come over here. <laughs> you got everyone dancing and and drinking that probably rot gut whiskey because it could have been good whiskey. No. It's like that. Um, what's that terrible? You get what you get. There was one. There was. I was at the grocery store looking at uh, different bottles of whiskey, and <laughs> I was like, I always go to the bottom because I want to see what's the worst whiskey. Mm-hmm. And there was one in a plastic jug, and it was still called a uh, Canadian's finest. And I was all, I don't think that's Canadian's no. finest. I think the Canadian finest is up there on the top shelf, yeah. not the one that's twelve ninety nine for like a liter and a half of of whiskey in a plastic jug, too. <laughs> in a in a plastic jug, that's weird. and the jug was like kind of designed where it looked like it was not plastic. Mm-hmm. So I went over there and thumped it with my finger, and I just started laughing. Energy people are like, what the hell is this guy doing? And I'm like, ah, 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 look at this, Canadian's finest. <laughs> so it, it had to be pretty terrible. Yeah. The city streets were battlegrounds for rival gangs looking to have control over the lucrative illegal alcohol trade. The center of the storm was Al Capone, the infamous mobster. On February 14th, Valentine's Day, 1929, Seemingly routine bootlegging garage at 2122 North Clark Street became the stage for one of the most infamous and brutal events in mob history. Seven men associated with George Bugs Morgan's gang. <laughs> His nickname is Bugs. <laughs> I wonder if that's where they got Bugs money. He's like, ah, what's up, Doc? Oh, maybe. Yeah, maybe that's what Yeah, because he always had a, a <laughs> carrot, like a cigar. Like a stogie, Yeah. They were lined up against the wall, mercilessly gunned down. The assailants, disguised as uniformed policemen, stormed the garage, leaving behind a gruesome scene. Tommy guns were just out in the open. just They were just laying them out, (laughs) just just loading into them. And the air filled with the stench of gunpowder as the attackers swiftly executed their victims. The brutality and precision of the massacre sent shockwaves through the criminal underworld in the nation. The target of the attack was George Bugs Morgan, a rival of Al. I'm still going to call him <laughs> Al. <tell you. laughs> However, a twist of, in a twist of fate, Morgan narrowly escaped the massacre, arriving late to the rendezvous and witnessing the aftermath from a distance. This guy, he probably had a, a, a guy that didn't, it was a new guy, mm-hmm. didn't know how to run the, run the car for him. And he took a wrong turn at Albuquerque. 
And then he comes <laughs> over here when he shows up and everybody's massacred. All those guys are dead. And he's like, whoa, 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 calm down. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's get out of here. We got to look for Al. <laughs> the St. Valentine's Day massacre marked a turning point in the public's perception of organized crime. The brutality and audacity of the attack shocked even those accustomed to the violence of the era. Despite public outrage and call for justice, the perpetrators, they remained elusive. The massacre remains unofficially unsolved. Oh, wow. So they've never solved it. They know who was there, but they can't prove it. Yeah. However, in 1931, his luck ran out. Al was convicted of federal income tax evasion and sentenced to 11 oh, years in prison. That's go. how you know they couldn't get anything yeah. on you. <laughs> Let's take a quick break. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. Well, let me see your receipts and uh, all your W-2s. <laughs> um, I see you haven't, uh, you claimed 17 Tommy yeah. guns. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Hmm. Do you have any receipts on that? Oh, man. I just killed the accountant. What? <laughs> uh, the accountant left. <laughs> He's on holiday. <laughs> it's always the accountant. They always, I don't know. What, don't be an accountant and work for the mob. They kill you every time. That's so funny how it always goes back to money. It's like, if they can't get you on anything yeah. else, let's audit them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's get the IRS <laughs> yeah. in there. Initially held at the U.S. Penitentiary in Atlanta, his continual influence over criminal activities prompted authorities to transfer him to Alcatraz in 1934. Alcatraz, with its reputation as an escape-proof fortress, was designed to curb the influence of high-profile inmates like Al. During his time on the island, Al's health, both physical and mental, deteriorated, exacerbated by his battle with syphilis. Did you know he had syphilis? Wow, I didn't know that. Oh, I, I thought everyone knew that. Yeah, he had syphilis. Hmm. Wonder where you got it from. Don't be sticking, everybody. You might get syphilis. It was, <laughs> <laughs> he's all my wife. <laughs> Ugh. In this confined and high security environment, Al faced the same harsh conditions as his fellow inmates. And his once formidable influence, it waned. No one gave a crap about mm-hmm. him. Everybody was in the same boat, and he couldn't he couldn't get the pool that he used to get in Atlanta. Eventually, he was released on parole in 1939. He spent his remaining years in declining health and passed away in 1947. That syphilis will get wow. you get you get you in the brains. Yeah, eventually your brain turns to. Mush. Doesn't it make like your face fall off too? Um, I or don't your know. Skin? I remember reading that about uh, Jack the Ripper. Who was Jack the Ripper though? Uh, he was uh, Jack. His name was Jack. <laughs> I don't. It could have been anybody. Oh, he liked to rip. I don't know. No, that's unsolved. Some too. say it was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. I don't know. Some say. Mm, I don't think it was. He did make. <laughs> he did make a living off of those Sherlock Holmes books. Mm. <laughs> Who knows? Elementary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard it makes like your uh, your nose and your skin. It's kind of eat, it eats away at it. So maybe 
Oh man, maybe it's uh, probably like a flesh flesh eating. Yeah, just don't do that. Like in its later stages, mm-hmm. like if it's yeah, I guess if it's uh, yeah. untreated and really bad, you just start melting away. That's scary. Oh yeah, don't be like Al Capone. <laughs> so one month later, George Machine Gun Kelly. became a resident of Alcatraz. Good old machine gun. (laughs) They had cool names back then. I know, they (laughs) did. Bugs. Bugs. (laughs) That was so funny. What happened? He eats bugs. Oh, okay. We call them bugs. just called them bugs, and it stuck. So in 1934, after a daring crime, they hauled him off to Alcatraz, the notorious island prison. His swagger and criminal bravado faced a serious reality check with those formidable walls. A high-security fortress with strict rules, and it was just a no-nonsense place. Every hour, every meal, every moment, everything was like a reminder for this for this person in this prison. There was like a, this uh, paper, and they found like a snippet of this old interview with this guy, with this machine gun guy. Mm-hmm. And they say, Alcatraz wasn't like any other prison. You felt the weight of those walls every day. Man. That's rough. Fast forward to 1951, after a sentence, Machine Gun Kelly said his goodbyes to Alcatraz, eventually meeting his end in 1954. His criminal legacy stuck around, but his time in Alcatraz became, uh, you know, one of those chapters of, in, in island history that everyone remembered. Yeah, he made it all the way to the 50s. That's a, well, at least he made it that far. <laughs> well, let's talk about. The Birdman, because if they're on a bird <laughs> island, you got to talk about the Birdman of Alcatraz. He probably thought he owned that island when he got there. <laughs> he walked around, bird, 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 bird. <laughs> Don't you do it. Throw him in the hole. <laughs> His real name was Robert Stroud, and he became one of the most infamous inmates in Alcatraz. But his notoriety primarily steamed from his activities before he he arrived on the island. So everyone knew who this guy was. Mm. He was a convicted murderer, and he was a ornithologist. <laughs> so wow. that's why they called him the Birdman. He was a he was a Birdman. Okay, the name fits. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really weird. It's like, what do you do? I study birds and murder (laughs) whoa "Whoa." that's intense and he kind of looked like a bird too (laughs) he had this weird pointy face you'll post pictures it'll be pretty cool yeah maybe he was part bird he he could have been (laughs) maybe his name was robert stroud birdman oh yeah that could have been a thing too (laughs) (laughs) he was a birdman his initial crime occurred in 1909 when he killed a bartender in alaska Following a series of legal battles, Stroud was sentenced to death, which was later commuted to life in prison after spending time in solitary confinement. I never understood that either, is back then, like, you would get death, and then they'd go, ah, okay, you you, you spent time in the hole, life in prison, and then you do something else, like, ah, we'll let, you, we'll let you go, you're fine, it's okay. Yeah, they would change their mind, it's weird. It's so nuts. While serving his sentence in federal prisons, including Leavenworth, Stroud developed an interest in birds. He began studying them extensively, eventually becoming an expert on avian diseases. Hmm. So this guy loved the birds. The bird the flu, swine flu. That was his jam. Oh, no, that's something. That's uh, No, bird. Yeah, that's a pig. <laughs> yeah, only birds. However, his newfound passion led to further trouble. In 1942, Stroud was transferred to Alcatraz due to his continued illegal activities, including running a bird breeding business from his cell. Wow. (laughs) Without a license. He was an entrepreneur. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> they said, did you get a, they said, let me get your, um, what is it? Your IRS business number. <laughs> and he's like, I don't have one. They're like, strike one. Yep. Let me see your receipts. Strike two. Let me see your license. I, I'm in prison. Send them to Alcatraz. Nope. Then Fish and Game gets involved. Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> Damn government overreach. Always stepping in. It's a whole ordeal. Now, despite his popular name, nickname being the Birdman, Stroud never had birds in Alcatraz. His avian studies were conducted during his time in Leavenworth. And he was known that when they transferred him, everyone's like, hey, that's the Birdman. That's they just started calling him the Birdman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then you got the new then you got the new guy that just uh, got sent to Alcatraz. He's like, I don't get it. What he doesn't even have birds. <laughs> <laughs> Every time he sees him, he's all there's no yeah, birds. He's all, I, he's all I just don't get it. This name does not fit. Yeah, every <laughs> every day he just puts his hand against his fist or his head. And he's like, oh, man, when will this end? Yeah, he calls him Birdman, but sarcastically. He's like, oh, here comes the Birdman again. <laughs> Never has any birds. Nope. Do you even like chicken? He's all, no, I'm allergic. <laughs> he's all, damn it. Gets his hat. Because you all have hats. Yeah. Throw one on the ground, steps on it. <laughs> Alcatraz authorities strictly prohibited his bird-related activities. <laughs> as soon as they saw him no birds you know what? We're- no bird activities for you sir enough is enough <laughs> you see him next to a bird straight to jail nope. <laughs> he says burr straight to jail <laughs> bi straight to jail that's such a weird punishment like specifically for him like no birds <laughs> yeah that's so nuts <laughs> shroud never had the opportunity to tend to birds during his incarceration on the island robert stroud the Birdman, spent a total of 17 years in segregation at alcatraz in 1959 due to his failing health he was transferred to the medical center for federal prisons in Springfield, Missouri. He remained there until his death in 1963. Wow. The Birdman of Alcatraz immortalized in the 1962 film, and it's titled the same name, The Birdman of Alcatraz. I've never heard mm. of it. Um, I kind of want to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's starring Burt Lancaster. And remains a complex and controversial figure in the history of Alcatraz. While he achieved a, a level of fame for his avian studies, his violent past and circumstances of his imprisonment continue to spark debate about the nature of justice and rehabilitation in the prison system. So there's a story that was told in the book that I read Inside Alcatraz, in, Inside Alcatraz My Time on the Rock by Jim Quillen about the Birdman. And it shows how he just wanted to see the world burn. He just, he was such a problem oh, in prison was, and he did it just for he fun. He was a joker. <laughs> yeah. He, oh, you're going to like this story okay. then. Speaking of the joker. <laughs> so he goes on to say it's around 8 PM and Bob Stroud starts complaining about feeling sick. So they would call the doc, but guess what? The guy's off the Island. So the doctor, they only had certain times. And I think they said it was seven o'clock or it was just at eight. It was one of those times where, the doctor would leave every day mm-hmm. at a certain time. And then you're basically stuck until he gets back. They'll send like a little medic guy. And if they deem that it's not medically like a, a medical emergency, you just shut the hell up and you got to suffer until the doctor gets there. Yeah. So the officer said to him, wait for an MTA and they'll check him out when it's convenient. That seemed to settle Strauss down for a bit, but an hour later, no medical help arrived and he started to complain again. 
Another call to the hospital gets an angry response, and an MTA finally shows up. Quick check, and surprise, Strauss is declared perfectly healthy. There's nothing wrong with him. But that didn't stop Stroud. An hour later, he's back at it, demanding to see the doctor, who by this time has returned to the island. The doc refused to come, and another angry MTA appears. This time, a more thorough check is done, but once again, they didn't find anything. The MTA heads back to the hospital, and all this fuss has other inmates getting really antsy. Now, these guys, they were determined to stand up for Stroud. I don't know why, but mm. like it, they said that in the book, he said, well, maybe it was because we felt like, you know, they don't take a serious, and if there is a medical problem, like maybe he could have had like a kidney issues or right even like a bladder infection or something where the, he needed to be seen and they weren't taking him seriously mm-hmm. so every stroud started stirring the pot starts telling him look see it doesn't matter i'm over here dying and and no one no one cares about us and we don't deserve this so now they start banging their tin drinking cups on the steel bars shouting started screaming obscenities towards the guards And after two hours of chaos, the administration, they finally responded. The associate warden, and they called, they had these guys that they called the goon squad. In the book, he he calls them the goon squad. And what the goon squad was, was the meanest, toughest, asshole guards that there were that were willing just to bust some skulls. They did not care. They would break the law. They would break the rules. It didn't matter to them. So they could stomp you out. So if you were getting smart, they would call the goon squad. And they'd go over there and stomp you until you were almost dead and then take you to the hospital and they'd write up a fake report yeah. and then there was nothing you could do about it. He fell down the stairs 10 times on his face. <laughs> he was hitting himself in the face Yeah, <laughs> over and over again when we showed up. <laughs> that's, ter- that's terrible. So this goon squad, they told him to quiet down or they'd face the consequences. Well, that didn't sit well for the, the, um, the inmates at all. They issued their ultimatum. Get the doctor to examine Stroud, or we'll wreck ourselves. Oh, man. So the goon squad, they they leave because, you know, they think, okay, they're not going to do this. We already told them we're going to crack some skulls, so they're not Mm going to do any of this. However, an hour later, the destruction began. Someone on the upper tier smashed their toilets and wash basins, and all hell break loose after that. Uh, He goes on to say, it's like a a domino effect of destruction. Inmates are trashing their cells, setting fires, breaking windows, pure chaos. So I decided I was going to get in the action too, (laughs) draining the (laughs) toilet, stuffing it with anything flammable, and then setting it on fire. Then I flush the toilet. Well, what happens when you flush the toilet and it's been hot? It shatters. Yeah, it shatters. Because it's it's cold seawater coming in. Then using a broken fragment to smash the sink and breaking the mattress open. Blankets and pillows got the same treatment. It was insane, but it it felt like a release, a rebellion against the system. Man, they're all chanting, give him his birds. Give him his birds. (laughs) (laughs) Give him birds or give him peace. Give him birds or give him peace. He's had enough. Just complete and all of a sudden he walks out has his arms open wide like jesus <laughs> and all the birds come down and pick him up and he yeah. flies away like a superhero oh that'd be awesome <laughs> or like a super villain yeah <laughs> and everyone's all yeah and he goes <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh man. that makes sense Birdman from Bird rick and morty <laughs> <laughs> so when the dust settled 
They were all going to face consequences. <laughs> yeah, you're still in prison. This this guy goes on to say, one by one, they were taken individually to go see the warden. And oh, as man. they walked through the cells, they all noticed something. Stroud's cell, it was untouched. It was perfect. He never destroyed anything. And he was standing there looking at him. He wasn't even sick. He was smiling. <laughs> <laughs> yep that's a joker move right there that's such a joke that's what i mean like he was a super villain <laughs> yeah. this guy is so and everyone's walking by like son of a bitch like you really got us that's insane he says turns out he played us all <laughs> <laughs> we lose half our good time we also got 19 days of isolation, increased attention, and no transfer until the damages were paid in full. So they had like on wow. on duty jobs where they mm-hmm. got paid like cents a day or a dollar, whatever the price was. So all that money went to pay for all the wreckage. And here's another thing. So what that meant was that they were in their isolation cells already. They would mm-hmm. shut the doors on them. Well, their windows are broken. Their toilets are broken. Their sinks are broken. Their yeah. beds are destroyed. They cleaned up the mess, left everything broken, and gave them a bucket. Wow. So they were freezing at night. It's a, he goes, the place was a wreck for a while, and we we're freezing our butts off with broken windows and plumbing. <laughs> and after the time was after that time had been uh, served, the 19 days, then they fixed everything. So they waited 19 days and said, all right, it's going to be extra terrible for you guys for 19 days. Mm-hmm. And then after that, they took them all out, fixed their, fixed their areas and said, huh, learn your lesson. He goes, yep, we learned a lesson. Don't mess with the rock. But man, that night was something else. <laughs> like his nostalgia, like, yeah, I mean, man, we did it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's something, it's, it's a moment in history. <laughs> I know we're talking about it now. We're yeah. reading books and all kinds of stuff. It's like, man. So next, let's talk about James Joseph Whitey. That's his nickname, Whitey. <laughs> Bulger. Well, there you go. He was an infamous American organized crime figure who operated primarily in Boston during the later half of the 20th century. He was born September 29th in Boston. He grew up in a large Irish family in the working class neighborhood of South Boston. His younger brother, William Bulger, became a prominent Massachusetts politician. So one went one way, one went the opposite. Yeah, night and day. However, they were both criminals. So that's pretty good. Well, yeah, politician. Well, he's a politician. I mean, come on. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> come on. Whitey became involved in criminal activities at a young age. He joined local street gangs and eventually became associated with the Winter Hill Gang, an Irish-American organized crime group in Boston. He engaged in various criminal act enterprises, including racketeering, extortion, loan sharking, and drug trafficking. He rose to power within the Winter Hill Gang, becoming a significant figure in Boston's underworld. In, on November 27th, 1959, he arrived at Alcatraz. He was transferred to Alcatraz from an Atlanta penitentiary. His transfer was not due to violent behavior or escape attempts, but rather as a result of his problematic behavior at the prison. So just random things added up, and they said, nope, send his ass to Alcatraz. Whitey had been involved in a series of disciplinary issues, and the authorities decided to move him to Alcatraz as a way to manage his behavior and maintain order. He was assigned inmate AZ-1428 during his stay on the island. After serving a few years at Alcatraz, he was transferred to the federal prisons, where he was eventually released from federal custody in 1965. Do you see what I mean? It's like these guys. 
They make them out to be such a menace. They're like, I just let him go. (laughs) So in a highly controversial turn of events, you know why he was uh, released? Uh, Overcrowding? Nope. He became an FBI informant in 1970. Wow. He's a rat. Yep. Uh, He he provided information about the Italian mafia, helping the FBI dismantle rival criminal organizations. So he was working for the man to to make sure that his gang was still intact. Wow. Is in in his exchange for uh in exchange for his cooperation, Whitey allegedly received protection from the FBI, which allowed him to continue his criminal activities with uh, relative impunity. However, 1994, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> this guy's old as hell. <laughs> I was three years old. <laughs> Whitey was indicted on multiple federal charges, including racketeering, extortion, money laundering, and involvement in 19 murders. Learning about these charges, Whitey went on the run in late 1994. For over 16 years, he evaded capture to become one of the FBI's top 10 most wanted. Wow. You heard that right, 16 years. He was finally arrested June 2011. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Wow, that is he was a <laughs> geez. 2011. He was born in t- 1929. This guy's like he's like granny's age running around. Yeah, hey, when you can get away with it, I mean, <laughs> he's all, "Man, see, I'm Whitey, see? I'm part of the Irish mob, see?" <laughs> They're like how did he get caught? Well, he was the only guy that was still talking like that in 2000. He, yeah, he was the like, only one around. <laughs> He said, man, I met the Birdman, see? There was a Birdman on Alcatraz. He had birds. They didn't let him have birds, but he was a Birdman. Birdman, see? It's like, wait, what are you doing? Why do you keep saying the same thing over and over Gosh. again? Somebody get their demented grandpa away from me. I had to let, that was 19 murders. I was involved in them. Yeah, I was involved in a lot of them. <laughs> I mean, is that even a win? Like having him arrested at this, finally having him arrested? Like, just let him be. He's probably, yeah, just let him be. <laughs> oh, man. So the trial. Was he was he was arrested in Santa Monica, so he was arrested right down the road, wow. a couple hours away yeah. from us, along with his lifelong companion Catherine Gregg. In 2013, he faced a federal trial in Boston. He was found guilty on multiple counts, including racketeering, conspiracy, and they dropped the 19 down to 11 murders. So, I mean, hey, I guess yeah, said something. He was sentenced in 2013. To two consecutive life terms plus five years. He only has like a couple years to live. Like, yeah. you're gonna, gonna, he's already got one foot out the door. Oh, <laughs> you're trying. Oh, he lived. He li- oh, okay. Well, he lived to, Octo- or to October 30th, 2018. <laughs> wow. He almost saw the pandemic. <laughs> That's crazy. Then the pandemic would have got him. He should have just waited around a year or two. Then he could have got the COVIDs. Mm -hmm. He was found dead in his prison cell at the United States Penitentiary, Hazleton, in West Virginia. His death was ruled a homicide. (laughs) He didn't even die of Wow. Yeah, he could have kept going. It was believed that he was attacked by other inmates. That's kind of nuts that you're like, get the 90-year-old. It's like, what did he do? Where he? You know why? Because he kept talking like that. They were like, shut up, shut up, <laughs> shut up. He's like, I'm white, you see? Oh, they only got me for 11 murders. They did 19, see? Yeah. <laughs> Finally, someone's like, oh, just 
hit him. (laughs) They all just, they all just beat the crap out of him. Man. Wow. So now let's talk about Alvin creepy Carpus. (laughs) Creepy. He was creepy. Called him uh, the Joe Biden of Alcatraz. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) He was notorious for several reasons, particularly during his involvement with the Barker Carpus gang and his criminal activities during the Great Depression. Carpus was a prominent member of the of the gang, a criminal organization led by Ma Barker and her sons. Mm. So this is one of those, like one of the movies, you know, where it's like, oh, uh, the Ma has us and she's taking yeah. care of us, <laughs> including Arthur Doc Barker. The gang was notorious for its involvement in various criminal activities, including bank robberies, kidnappings and other violent crimes. Carpus and the Barker Carpus gang gained inf- infamy for their involvement in the high profile kidnapping of William Ham Jr., a wealthy brewer. The gang kidnapped him in 1933 and later received a ransom for his release. The kidnapping brought significant attention from law enforcement and the public to the gang. After the arrest of John Dillinger in 1934, Carpus became public enemy number one by the FBI. So this designation intensified the efforts to capture him. (laughs) See, that's what happens. He said, I got to be number one. I got to be number one. And they got Dillinger and he's all, I'm number one. And you know what that means, right? They're literally everybody. Yeah. However, he managed to evade capture for an extended period, showcasing his uh, remarkable ability to avoid law enforcement. He was on the run for nearly two years before he finally got captured in New Orleans in 1936. Creepy Carpus holds the distinction of being one of the longest serving inmates at Alcatraz. He spent nearly 26 years on the island, enduring harsh conditions and strict security measures. So when he, when he, when uh, Creepy Carpus, when he was captured, that kind of ended the Barker Carpus gang and its criminal activities. His subsequent conviction on kidnapping charges and other crimes led to a life sentence in prison. Arthur Doc Barker, which was, uh, he was the other part of the gang, the Carpus Barker mm-hmm. gang. So they, his nickname was Doc which is still pretty funny because it reminds me of Bugs. He's like, what's up, Doc? Yeah. So, uh, Arthur Barker was born in, on June 4th, 1899, and was the son of notorious criminal Ma Barker. The Barker family included Arthur and his brother Fred. They became involved in organized crime during the Prohibition era. Arthur Barker was a member of the Barker Carper gang with, with his buddy Creepy Carper during the 30s. When they were looking for the members of the Arthur Barker gang, Barker wasn't too lucky, like uh, like creepy, creepy Carpus over there. He got caught in 1935, and he was convicted on federal charges relating to the kidnapping, and he was sent straight to Alcatraz. Oh, man. So he got there after his conviction, January 13th, 1936. So let's talk about the Battle of Alcatraz. You ever heard of the Battle of Alcatraz? No. Picture this. You're in a maximum security prison, and during the day... On clear days, you can see San Francisco, Fisherman's Wharf. Um, you could see sailing ships. They had like the yacht club was right there. So you see the yacht club. They're just all sailing by oh, and you're just losing your damn mind because you're like, I wish I can lick her face. <laughs> I don't know. They're, they're weird, <laughs> creepy. Those creepy, creepy Kratzel, yeah. whatever his name was there. Creepy <laughs> old creeper was there and then and they're all checking this stuff out. So they finally lost it. 
The Battle of Alcatraz took place in May 1946. In May 1946, it was a violent confrontation between correctional officers and inmates attempting to escape from Alcatraz Island. So there were six inmates on May 2nd, 1946. Bernard Coy, Joseph Kretzer, Marvin Hubbard, Sam Shockley, Clarence Carnes, and Myron Thompson, or Myron Thompson. They attempted to escape from Alcatraz. They had managed to overpower several guards, seize weapons, and gain control of the cell house. (laughs) It lasted for approximately two days from May 2nd to May 4th. The violent confrontation involved a standoff between correctional officers and inmates who attempted to escape from Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary. The initial takeover of of parts of the prison and the subsequent assault of the correction officers unfolded over this two-day period. So in the book that I read, he says that when the warden got there, the warden was like, okay, let's change the story because we don't want it to look bad on us. So this is the official story that I'm going to read. And then I'll tell you at the end what all the things that actually happened. I'll just tell you what actually (laughs) happened. So the inmates armed with improvised weapons and firearms taken from guards took control over the cell block and the gun gallery. Their plan involved using a bar-spreading device to open the cell doors and gain access to the prison yard. The correction officers, led by Associate Warden E.J. Miller and former Marine and Army veteran Elliot Zerbus, initiated negotiations with the inmates. However, the negotiations failed, leading to a tense standoff. Realizing that negotiations were not going to succeed, a team of correctional officers armed with tear gas and firearms launched an assault on the cell house on the morning of May 4th, 1946. Elliot Zerberst, who had military experience, played a key role leading the assault. The correctional officers faced significant challenges as they fought their way through the fortified positions held by the inmates. The battle involved intense gunfire, hand-to-hand combat, and the use of tear gas to subdue the inmates. The Battle of Alcatraz resulted in casualties on both sides. Two correctional officers, William A. Miller and Harold Stites, lost their lives during the assault. Three of the inmates, Bernard Coy, Joseph Kretzer, and Marvin Hubbard, were also killed. Their surviving inmates, Sam Shockley, Clarence Carnes, and Myron Thompson, were put on trial for those roles in attempted escape and the deaths of the correctional officers. In the aftermath of the battle, security measures at Alcatraz were tightened, and the prison's reputation for being escape-proof was reinforced. The legal aftermath of the Battle of Alcatraz contributed to discussions about prison policies, inmate treatment, and the use of force in federal penitentiaries. The indictment influenced ongoing debates about the role of maximum security prisons and the U.S. penal system. Okay, so that's the official story, mm-hmm. and in the book, by one of the inmates, now, he was also an inmate, so you gotta, you know, take it for what <laughs> it is. He said that the warden, when they were telling everyone what was going on, that they had the Marines there. Now, if you look up where the Marines actually there, there's no, you can't find anything that says they were actually Marines on the base, or on the the um, the island at all. Okay. Now, this guy is saying there were. So there's one thing. The other thing is one of the correctional officers was shot in the back of the head. Hmm. So he was most likely killed by a guard or by a Marine because this prison inmate, this inmate said that they were shooting through the windows as well, through like two D block. Hmm. So everybody was facing that side and they were shooting through the window to shoot D block 
and a stray bullet could have hit him and right. killed him. But the three pe- the three men were charged with all of their murders. Sam Shockley, they said, was a schizophrenic, and he wasn't all there. He wasn't fit to stand trial. He should have never been in prison to begin with. He should have been in a mental institution um, or some kind of facility. And when they questioned him about it, he just agreed to everything because he didn't know what the hell was going on. <laughs> that makes sense. So, you know, poor guy, but he did do some horrible things mm-hmm. as well. And lastly, they said that they had makeshift guns. Like I read in the beginning, said, oh, they had. Um, yeah. How does that work? <laughs> improvised weapons and firearms. Well, they were trying to say that they had a rifle when whatever gun they had, they said they had, it was a gun that the guards didn't use. And the warden said that specifically just so he could say like, well, somebody, somebody must've helped mm-hmm. him. And on the inside, it was an inside job and got him weapons that we didn't have because he was trying to protect the prison. I'm just saying these guys actually did overpower us and take it over. Yeah. Cause if that actually got out, it wouldn't be as, much of a like we're gonna send you to alcatraz to be like all right well maybe you know you guys aren't as tough as you say you are right and in d block they were they were shooting everything when they went back to d block they didn't know where these prisoners were some of them were that were Mm -hmm. armed so they started clearing all the rooms in d block and stuff and this guy the inmate he was in d block and he said what they were doing is they were shooting um grenades through trying to shoot them through the bars from the outside because they were just trying to kill them all. It didn't matter. They were like, you know what? We're going to kill all these mm-hmm. inmates, and then we don't have to worry about it yeah. anymore. That wasn't in the official story. And what they were doing was they were getting mattresses, and they were stacking them against their bodies, hoping that it would kind of create shrapnel-proof mm-hmm. or bulletproof or something. Yeah. One of the grenades went off, or a few of them went off. They blew up the plumbing. So now there's running water everywhere, which actually helped. Because it soaked the mattresses soaked up this mm-hmm. water, and now they became semi bulletproof and shrapnel proof. So the, a lot of the inmates were able to get out after the guards cleared everything, and everything was over. None of that's in the official story. Um, I just wanted to say that because I read that book, and um, it seems reasonable, especially for the time. Yeah, especially from an account from someone who was actually in D Block. I don't really see what they would benefit from saying that. I, I don't know. Selling the book. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, man, I got to sell these books. See, <laughs> man, we got to push them out. Got to push them out. Wow, yeah. Let's go over what I know a lot of you want to hear: some notable escape attempts. Oh man! <laughs> In 1937 at Alcatraz, there were these two guys: Theodore Cole and Ralph Rowe. These guys have the names that you don't hear. Just, yeah, what happened? To all the names now? <laughs> those names are so weird. I don't know. They decided they were done with prison life and wanted to break free. They came up with this plan to saw through the flat bar cell bars, and then they fashioned a makeshift raft out of raincoats. I mean, Mm. raincoats. So unless these guys were master builders. (laughs) Oh, man. So one night they make their move, cut through the bars. They actually cut through them. They paddle away in the cold waters of San Francisco Bay. But here's the thing. The next morning, the prisoners realized they were gone. And it turns out they didn't make it very far. Oh, Most likely they drowned because it was very windy and rocky that mm-hmm. night. Most likely because it was just really windy and rocky that night. To show, So that just showed you like what people did to try to get out. They would do any, any means by any means necessary to mm-hmm. get out. But eh, you're not going to make it. No. 
So the next one we're talking about is 19, the 1962 attempt of Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers. I've heard of this one. <laughs> so in 1962, this one's like a movie, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, they did make a movie about it, right? Yeah, they did. Um, so you got Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers, John and Clarence. These guys were like the, the hooligans of Alcatraz. They came up with this elaborate plan to break free. They mm-hmm. managed to create these makeshift life vests and a raft using raincoats. Again, raincoats. Then they carefully chipped away at the vents opening in their cells over months. One night, they make their move, escape their cells, and vanish into darkness. Now, here's the crazy part. They paddled away on their makeshift raft into the water, and then that's it. They're gone. Mm-hmm. No one ever found them. Yeah, that's the, hist- that's the mystery. They're not sure if yeah, they no made one- it or not. Yeah, no one knows they if they were died never or found. They yeah. Started started over. That's the cool thing. <laughs> yeah, no one knows. And that's the big question that is still unanswered. The 1962 escape is one of the greatest unsolved mysteries of Alcatraz. And it inspired books, documentaries, and the Clint Eastwood film Escape from Alcatraz, The Fate oh, of the man. Escapees in the Case and the, the the fate of the escapees in the case remains a mystery. <laughs> I like to think that they got away. I think the Bermuda Triangle. That's got what away. it was. It was the um, <laughs> the San Francisco Triangle. Yeah. Lastly, let's get into the 1971 escape of Alcatraz. Uh, this time, it's John Paul Scott trying to make a break for it. So Scott decides he's had enough on the rock and decides to climb a fence, thinking he could slip away into the night. So, of course, the guard spotted him. <laughs> it turned into a tense situation. Mm-hmm. Scott's making a run for it, and the guards are high alert. In the end, he didn't get very far. Shots are fired, and unfortunately, he didn't make it. So they just shot him for escape, <laughs> which kind of seems very unreasonable. <laughs> Where's he going to go? Yeah. He had nowhere to go. We got a runner. He's most likely going to die in the and water. And this is what the, um, <laughs> in the book, this is what he was talking about. He said, these guards would, any reason to shoot you, they wanted to shoot you. Mm-hmm. So he said, it seemed yeah. like sometimes they would give you an opportunity to get shot. Mm-hmm. Like they would look the other way and wait for you to do something. And then they got you. So that's what it seems in this. Yeah. They're like, all right, watch him climb it. Watch him climb it. And then he's over. Go get him. And then they. Yeah, they're probably watching him the whole time. So almost three decades after its dark corridors were first first witnessed life behind bars, Alcatraz finally closed its doors one last time, a dramatic conclusion to its chapter in history. Alcatraz Penitentiary shut down primarily due to high cost operations, deteriorating conditions, aging infrastructure. The escape attempts really didn't help because despite <laughs> its reputation of escape proof, uh, there were several attempts. And they say none were successful, but eh, maybe one of them was successful. Yeah. Who knows? So you can't really say you're escape proof when people are, are jetting off the walls and there's, there's all kinds of riots and stuff inside of the prison. Now it seems like you don't have control over the years. The number of inmates at Alcatraz decreased the prison's limited capacity on the availability of newer, more modern facilities made it less essential for housing federal prisoners. In the early 1960s, there was a shift in the approach of corrections and rehabilitations, and the harsh conditions at Alcatraz focused on isolation and strict discipline. Uh, they were falling out of favor with the uh, more progressive rehabilitation methods. The public image on Alcatraz mm-hmm. 
Also, um, for the harsh conditions, yeah, it didn't really go well with the evolving ideals. This is the 60s. People are starting to think outside of the box and say, maybe, you know, we shouldn't treat human beings like this because it's just uncivilized. Mm-hmm. Now, the closure was also seen as a response to changing attitudes toward rehabilitation and humane treatments of prisoners. And Alcatraz finally closed its doors as a federal penitentiary on March 21st. 1963. Wow. And that is the end of part three of Alcatraz. Man, that was a lot of cool stuff. <laughs> yeah, I liked all the, there was bugs and Doc and Creepy and Whitey and <laughs> the Birdman. <laughs> so many weird names. Oh, gosh. What was that one guy? He was a, in the 20s. He was a big, a big name. Carl Panzeram. Oh, yeah. That's a name. That guy. Oh, he wasn't there, but he could have definitely been there. Carl Panzeram mm-hmm. is, oh, oh, <laughs> scary. That's another big one. There's like a book about him. And when you read it, he's all, and there was the, the get man and the, and the jig man. And then he was a fisher, <laughs> you know, a fisher. He was, he was no punk either. And then those were the, the skirt chasers and the winnie whackers. And it's all, what the hell are you saying? Like, <laughs> He was a jib man. You know, a jib man. It's like, no, I don't know what a jib man is. <laughs> the slang. It was just, the, uh, yeah, I don't know. Slang. You had to be there. Gosh. He's all, we rode the cars <laughs> and they weren't going to cornhole me. And I'm all, what are we doing? <laughs> oh, man. We got to so that's that during the time. Back. <laughs> Start talking like that again. Yeah. I, I hope not. That, that's how they'll get you. They're like, are you the guy? That was born a hundred years ago. <laughs> yeah, see, I was born. Nineteen murders. Yeah, it's part of the gang, <laughs> the big gang. <laughs> I saw Sinatra, shook his hand, yeah. <laughs> and I knew it was a good shake because he just hit his wife. <laughs> it's like, <"Whoa."> oh man. <laughs> I shook Sinatra's hand. <laughs> <laughs> what an honor. Oh gosh. Yeah. So that was part three. Hope you guys enjoyed it. I know it was, it was a little fun part of the episode um, or fun yeah. part in this series. I just wanted to get into all that stuff. A little uh, short and sweet episode this week. And mm-hmm. then when we get into next week's episode. Oh, we're going to get into it because we're not done. We're not no, done not at yet. All. There's still more that has to be dealt with on Alcatraz Island. Oh man. So <laughs> much history. So we go, we guys, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And if you guys did, please share it with everyone, you know, share it with family, friends, anybody scream it, just just listen to this show and then it'll help (laughs) us out. But you got to tell them where to to find us and we're on every major podcasting platform. So that's pretty Mm -hmm. simple. And since you're there already finding us, just go ahead and give us a five-star rating and a review screenshot that send it to info at behillnetwork.com with your mailing address and your alias and we'll shoot you out some free stickers as a thank you from us to you for helping us out because it really does help a lot and it's really it's free easy to do so thank you in advance for that yeah also make sure you follow us on our social media at indigenous underscore tales that's on instagram tiktok and youtube We post a lot of videos and pictures and all kinds of stuff. So just follow us on all those things. If you use those platforms, it's really awesome. If you help us get our followers up, because that also increases listeners, more listeners, the better the show is going to be for you guys as well. Mm -hmm. And if you want to check out some of the cool merch, me and Gabe are wearing matching shirts right now. So that's pretty cool. The variant (laughs) version of the Nightmares of the Americas shirt. Go to indigenoustales.threadless.com. We have sporadic sales. I think we have another sale before the end of the year, don't we? 
Uh, I believe so. Yeah. We think we have one more sale before the end of the year. So make sure. And it's like the, it's like the last week you get to order and get your stuff before Christmas or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So go ahead and follow us on the major podcasting platform. So you'll be the first one to hear about when we have sales. Go ahead and follow us on our social media so you can be one of the first ones to see when we have our next and last sale for the year and maybe get some of those sweet last minute gifts. So go ahead and do all that, th- all that stuff. We love you guys. Appreciate you guys. Remember, uh, mental health, please check your guys self. You guys are responsible to make sure that your well being is cared for. So please yeah. do that. It's really, I know people are going through hard times all the time and just want to let you know you guys know that you matter and we love you guys and we care about you so hopefully you guys that really helps you because i know Mm -hmm. when people tell me that it helps me so yeah thanks for being our followers thanks for listening all that good stuff and until next time i'm joseph and i'm gabriel you'll be remembered by the tracks you leave and remain close to the great spirit he had birds they just picked him up (laughs) and he just floated away just that would have been like what was that movie uh we're back. The dinosaur movie. Oh yeah. Yeah, like that. We're at the end all all the crows come and get him and he turns into a bird mm-hmm. thing and then that's it. But I think they ate him. Yeah, they ate that guy though. <laughs> oh. I don't know. Okay. Birdman. <laughs> Whitey. Al. Can't forget Al. <laughs> all right. We're out of here. Bye. If you're not spiritually connected to the earth and understand the spiritual reality of how to live on earth likely you will not make it.